Okay, we're now on. Um, thank you for accepting to be interviewed for this episode. I'm really excited about it. <laughs> That's my pleasure. I'm excited too. So tonight we're going to be talking about slime mold. Um, it's uh, quite an interesting creature. It doesn't seem too complex at first sight, but actually it might hide some very interesting secrets. Um, yeah, and we're talking now to Chris Reed from Macquarie University, Sydney. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> Hello. And uh, you study natural complex systems. That's right. And also slime mold. Yes, slime mold is one of those systems. Yeah, for sure. Very yeah. complex. Very complex. Uh, so, yeah, how did you how did you start uh, researching slime mold? And are you still doing some research on it? What is it that attracts you the most about this creature? Uh, yeah, I'm definitely still working on it. There's lots more to be figured out. Um, I was originally pursuing what I was going to do with my PhD when I came across the slime molds. Uh, I visited a lab at the University of Sydney in Australia, uh, and I was originally going to work on honeybee genetics. So this was one of the leading labs in that field, and I went to visit them. Um, but some of the other things they were doing as sort of side projects really caught my eye. This was work on how these what we call decentralized systems, like um, honeybee colonies and ant colonies and slime molds, how they solve problems and do all this really crazy intelligent-like behavior um, despite not having a central brain or um, despite just being composed of a large number of what we might consider more simple subunits. And this was work that I had never come across before, but immediately captured my attention. And I decided to switch my PhD from honeybee genetics to um, sort of distributed decision-making in natural systems. And that's what I've been working with ever since for about a decade now. So there are two terms that you mentioned there um, that I'd like you to explain a bit more. So what do you mean yeah. by decentralized system? That's one. And another one, what is it that you mean by distributed decision-making? Yeah, definitely. We need to talk about this. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so a decentralized system is... Uh, essentially a, a system where there's no central controller uh, that is being given all of the information and that is then exerting control over the rest of the system. So I guess we should start by defining what a centralized system is and we can consider ourselves to be um, somewhat centralized systems. We'll talk about the somewhat later. Uh, but in essence, we're centralized because we have this very powerful information processor called a brain in our skulls. And that brain is receiving information from all of our senses, um, as well as all of our memories and our anticipation of the future. And it basically receives a huge amount of information over any given second and is able to incorporate all of that information um, and then to come to some sort of decision about what we should do next and transmit information about that decision to our muscles or our, um, the next process in the brain um, to enact that decision in the physical world. So that's where the brain as this really powerful centralized information processor sits in a centralized system. And because we have this kind of system in our heads, we tend to consider that that's how lots of things in the world work and maybe that that is how the best things in the world should work, such as computer programs or artificial intelligence. 
Uh, but the more we look at how nature works, uh, the more we start to see that there's a lot of decentralized systems out there. It's a very successful strategy that's been happening for, for millions of years. And in those systems, lots of separate sort of subunits, instead of an ant colony as the classic example of a decentralized system. Each individual ant may be considered to be quite simple, uh, but is able to gather information and respond to that even in a very limited way. And as each of the ants in the colony do that, uh, they're able to basically add up all of their information and the colony as a whole can somehow integrate that information just as a brain does and come to a colony level decision. And we call this basically swarm intelligence. So this is where the colony is able to do things and make decisions at a level that the individual ants themselves aren't able to. And that's where the really fascinating stuff comes in. But there, for instance, I've, I've got a question already because well, two questions. So one, when you're talking about ants, so ants do have a nervous system individually, but then That's this right. nervous system is uh, communicating with other nervous systems or other individuals. That's right. But don't get, don't get me wrong. Ants themselves are extremely complicated animals with a lot of um, very complicated circuitry in there, their own brains and nervous systems. Uh, but if you model an ant system in a computer model and you make them very simple agents that basically react very simply to things, you can come up with the same group level behavior as an ant colony. Um, so th those abilities allow ants to make use of a lot of information from the visual environment, from um, smells in the environment, and also their own memories. So that certainly makes them much more complex at an individual level. But at the group level, you only need very simple outputs from these individual agents and you can achieve really remarkable things. So basically what you're saying is that there are certain things that the ant colony could only compute and can only do as a group, but not individually. Absolutely. Yeah, a huge amount of things. Um, take the classic example of foraging with pheromone trails um, in ant colonies. So if you've ever seen, you would have seen in your, in your kitchens or around sidewalks, long trails of ants going somewhere to do something. Most of the time, those ants are foraging. They've found a food source, they're bringing it back to the nest. There's actually some pretty complicated um, decentralized decision-making going on here. Whenever an ant scout finds some food, and she decides this would be a good thing that the, net, the, the colony should have, then she returns back to the nest and lays a trail of chemicals behind her called pheromones. And those pheromones are, are basically these volatile chemicals that are rapidly evaporating. So they need to be reinforced constantly or they'll be <coughs> basically forgotten by the colony. Um, they won't have access to that information anymore. So when she returns to the nest laying this trail, other ants can then decide, I'm going to follow this trail. And that's, that's the behavior that it induces. And they can choose to add their own pheromone to that trail if they decide that's a good food source as well. So the trail builds by a process called positive feedback, where the trail itself encourages more trail following, which encourages more pheromone laying, which encourages more trail following. And very rapidly, we get the whole colony deciding that this is the best food source. We're going to exploit um, this particular candy bar or something we found on the sidewalk. And uh, you, you, that is essentially the group level decision that's been made by all these tiny little inputs from all the individual ants themselves. And how does it happen then in the case of the slime mold? Because 
when I look at it, what I see it seems to me there's just one single thing, but yet it's also classified as decentralized system, as if uh, this kind of group or colony behavior. Uh, how come? Yeah, it can get quite confusing. So basically, we should talk a bit about slime molds now, shouldn't we? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we we tend to think of them as um, somewhat similar on a on a mechanistic level. So when we're talking about swarm intelligence, it doesn't really matter what the the individual unit is, whether it's an ant or a little piece of slime mold. Um, slime molds themselves are a single single cell, one of the largest single cells that we can find. Uh, it's basically a big yellow block that can be up to several square meters in size, huge for a single cell. Uh, but inside that cell, there are millions of nuclei and mitochondria and all of the little tiny machines that make up what a cell does. So it's like if you yourself, um, all of the little cell walls around your cells are dissolved and you turn into this big bag of cellular contents, that's what a slime mold is. And so it's able to um, move around the environment in sort of a blobby, squishy way um, and find bits and pieces of food that it might like to eat or places where it might like to explore for food. And that's where the similarity uh, with ants starts to come in. So even though the slime mold is a single organism, uh, each little part of the slime mold, tiny microscopic parts of the slime mold, uh, are able to take in information through receptors on the cell surface. And that could be information about um, how much light there is, whether there's damaging salts in the environment, whether it's getting too dry or it's nice and wet, um, all of these things that are important to slime molds. And so it can sense that information, each little microscopic part of the slime mold senses that information and then reacts to it uh, in a way to communicate to other parts of the slime mold. And the way it reacts is by changing how fast it's pulsing. So each little gooey part of a slime mold is slowly contracting and releasing itself in the same way that our own muscle tissues do using actin, myosin, filaments, exactly the same mechanism. And each of those little pulses is tuned to how good the local environment is. So if this little microscopic part of a slime mold finds itself in a really good part of the environment, where there's lots of food, it's nice and moist and dark, then that part of the slime mold will pulse really fast. If a neighbouring part finds uh, a really bad area with salt or it's dry, then it'll pulse much slower. But because each part of the slime mold is physically linked to the neighbouring part through this sort of cell membrane, if one part's pulsing really fast, it kind of has to make the part next to it pulse fast as well, even if that part didn't necessarily sense those good things in the environment. And through this chain of linked oscillators, uh, information about good parts of the environment flows throughout the whole system. And so the whole system can come to a collective decision about where's the next best place to move to be in the best part of the environment at that time. It's funny because the way that you describe this is very similar to how a teacher would describe to me how neurons work inside a brain in terms of uh, you have one neuro pulsating and then communication to the next neuron that has to carry on with this pulsating rhythm. Do you think we can trace a parallel there? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. So we consider ourselves, as we talked about before, to be these centralised systems. And I guess on a conscious level, we maybe be, there's some founding for that. But if you start to break the brain down into its individual neurons and how they're behaving, and if you consider that the sum of all those behaviours is going to be 
how an individual reacts, then you start to see a very strong parallel with a decentralized system, even though a brain is a classic example of a centralized system. So if, say, one neuron is receiving information from multiple sources and it could um, choose option A or option B the next time it lets off an electrical signal or vote for that option um, in the brain, that neuron will be basically acquiring evidence that option A is better than option B and that option B is better than option A. And the first one of those to cross sort of an evidence threshold is when that neuron fires and says, this is the one we're going to decide is the best one. And all the neurons in your brain are doing it at the same time. And essentially, that's what makes up the decisions that we make. So it's kind of hard not to think of it as a, a decentralized system at that fundamental level, which is why studying insect colonies and slime molds is really interesting and important because we can mess with those systems much easier than we can mess with our brains, both in a, a sort of a conceptual sense and just in the laboratory. And yet, since they're so similar in some fundamental ways, we may get to some deeper understanding about how brains work by poking some slime molds or some hands. What kind of things have you learned from slime mold and how you apply to us? Well, there's a lot of advantages to using slime molds in a laboratory over humans. Um, a lot of our psychological experiments on humans suffer from a few key drawbacks. Um, one being we're finding they're very difficult to replicate. A lot of these key findings that have held up the, uh, the field for many years. And this is for many reasons, partially because a lot of the times when professors study these problems in humans, they are limited to how many people they can get to volunteer and what kinds of people they can get to volunteer for these things. And so already we're introducing some bias into um, the sampling. For slime mold, we don't tend to have that problem. We can uh, basically cut up a single slime mold into as many little pieces as we want. And each of those little pieces, after a matter of a few minutes, will organize itself into a new individual you might say. And so that we can test all those individuals um, in parallel very quickly. Um, and so we can get hundreds and hundreds of replicates. And so we get a, a much better basis on how to, um, how many we might need to get an unbiased sample. Um, but also, I forget what we were. Can you repeat that question? <laughs> so what kind of things can we learn uh about us, but parting from slime molds? Yeah, so there's a few things that um, the slime mold in recent years has sort of shaken up the whole field of cognition, you might say. So for a long time, we've considered ourselves to be this sort of separate entity from the rest of nature um, in many ways, but in largely due to us having this crazy um, information processing brain in our skulls. Um, a lot of times we would consider ourselves to be different from other organisms or operating on a different level. But when we start to test these same uh, classic cognitive experiments that we've been doing on humans in slime molds, we start to see a lot of fundamental similarities and that makes us question exactly how different we are from the rest of the evolutionary tree. Um, for instance, we might take speed accuracy trade-offs as, as a great example. So if you, we're all familiar with this, if you um, choose to do something really fast, 
you would expect that you might be a little less accurate, whether that's making a decision on the fly or um, throwing a dart without taking time to, to take aim. Whereas if you want to be really accurate about something, you would tend to take your time and do it slowly and gather as much information as you can to make the best decision. So for a long time, we thought these speed accuracy trade-offs were a fundamental aspect of having a brain, basically. The fact that if you have neurons wired together and this is the system that you use to make your decisions, then they will be subject to these speed accuracy trade-offs as a sort of physical or chemical constraint on that system. But when researchers tested slime mold with the same kind of speed accuracy trade-offs, they perform in a very similar way to how humans perform. Despite not having a brain or anything remotely resembling a neuron, and so that all makes us think, okay, maybe there's something at a much more fundamental level with speed accuracy trade-offs that affects perhaps all information processing systems and not just brains, and we can take a new perspective on that kind of, kind of problem. And from that, could we then think of slime as the beginning of um, our own intelligence or the very beginning of brains and nervous systems and how it all started in a way? Uh, I don't think we can probably quite go that far. I think what we can say is that these kinds of problems, basically how to find the best food source in a limited period of time, these are things that life has always had to find solutions to. And the slime molds found a solution to it a long, long time ago. Uh, we found our own solution to it and it bears some similarities but uses an entirely different mechanism. And I think the more we look at nature, the more we'll find a huge array of very different systems that are solving the same problem. And that actually is really important and exciting thing because it means there could be a huge amount of things out there to discover, new ways to look at problems and find solutions to the problems that we have. So what, what are the similarities and what are the differences in terms of strategies that slimes and humans would use to save the same problem? Uh, yeah, so it's an interesting question. So I guess outwardly, the, the outcome is the same for a decentralized system and a centralized system when it's solving a problem. Um, both of them can do complex decision-making capable of all kinds of things like learning and, and memory and things like this. So I guess that, and that is why we're so fascinated because we consider this problem that would be hard for us as you know, these, these humans can't do this. How can an ant colony or a slime mold? And yet they can, and that's why we call it swarm intelligence. Um, again, we talked about how similar when you look at the brain, how that seems to break down to a decentralized system at a fundamental level as well. So I think the more we look at it, the more we'll find there's a, a huge amount of fundamental similarities and the outcomes are the same, uh, but mechanisms might differ on a, on a basic level. Let's try and go back to um, intelligence. That's like the, the very beginning or the very first thing that came to my, uh, my mind when I wanted to do this interview. Whenever I read about slime molds in different newspapers and so on, it's always it's redefining the meaning of intelligence. But something that is not very clear to me is what exactly is defined by intelligence when people are saying this. Yeah, I mean, that will depend on who you ask. So it's one of these sort of nebulous, difficult to define things, and largely because it's charged with a huge amount of emotion um, and history. So I think psychologists would have a very different um, definition to, say, a behavioural ecologist or a computer scientist. 
And I think fundamentally, the way that I like to think about it is um, any system that gathers information from the environment and responds to that information um, in some way that enhances its um, survival or performance is acting in an intelligent way. And so I don't think it's quite useful to say that this thing is intelligent and this thing is not intelligent. Um, if you adopt this more broad definition, then everything from a paramecium, single-celled, simple organism up to a dolphin or a human is intelligent, but they just vary in the degrees of intelligence and what kind of information they can gather and how they can use that information. And they're only constrained by sort of the physical or chemical mechanisms they use um, to come to decisions and to integrate that information. And I think that's where it becomes a much more interesting discussion. How the integration of information happens. Yeah, I mean, if, if, we, if we constrain ourselves by saying that a paramecium can't make intelligent decisions, um, then we're already losing out on looking at the interesting mechanisms that a paramecium might use to uh, make sense of information from the environment and integrate that into a, a decision for its own benefit. Um, and these huge amount of different mechanisms that are available to nature will sort of be ignored. But then wouldn't just having DNA make you intelligent because DNA is also kind of in a way reacting and um, to the environment and creating new things when it's when uh, something uh, stimulates it. Um, yeah, I guess we have to, this is where it gets into the sort of grey zones, um, whether you're considering the difference between computation and sort of intelligent decision making. Um, and so we could, we could talk all day about <laughs> whether DNA is intelligent or not. And maybe we could both come up with good reasons for and against. Um, but for me, I think that discussion itself um, will start to hinder our, our thinking and really not produce any useful outcomes. Okay. Um, okay. And now related to the what you we were talking about before uh, in terms of... Uh, individual computations and uh, group computations so for instance if you give the same task though uh, to a slime and then to a human and you ask the human individually to uh, to answer it we'll do it in a certain way but if then you ask a group of humans to solve the same uh, task how would that affect the outcome and can you learn can this group of people learn from the slime mold and how they make this uh, information processing are more effective? Yeah, there's a huge amount of literature out there now from recent years in the sort of collective decision-making world about <clears throat> how best we can use what we've found from other systems. When you put humans together to solve problems, you don't always end up with a better outcome. That's one of the fundamental things we've found. Um, sort of a, a symptom of groupthink where Certain individuals may skew the findings in a negative way. Um, humans in general don't tend to act as perfectly rational beings. And most of the time we, we model our decision-making systems as being perfectly rational. And so when we try to get humans to replicate these things, it doesn't always work out. Uh, we're also susceptible to a huge range of other factors, um, a lot of social things, leaders, having leaders or not having leaders, uh, and they're... Um, sort of inordinate impact on the, the rest of the group. All of these things are starting to come out as being really important. 
Um, decentralized systems, because they have evolved over millions of years to work as really well as groups, tend not to have these problems. Uh, and so that's why there are really good systems to, to base it on. Um, there's a lot of information about there from everything from fish schools to bird flocks, slime molds, and ant colonies about what is the best way to make decisions, uh, whether we can sort of actually enact those in a human scenario is a, another question, and whether we can actually overcome our own deep biases about our behaviour. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, but certainly there's a lot of scope for computer systems and artificial intelligence to use these things, and people are starting to look into that now. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the word computers here. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing another two researchers, um, both Andrews, <laughs> Andrew Adamazzi, Adamazzi, I don't know how exactly how to pronounce this, and Andrew Schumann. Mm-hmm. And they're working mm-hmm. on creating a biological computer out of slime. I don't know if you've heard of it or not. No, I haven't heard of this one in particular. Someone is trying to create a computer made out of slime or integrating slime components to standard computers. What was the first thing that pops in your mind? Do you think that's going to work or is it even useful? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it'll be it'll be useful and it'll work in in different degrees. So I think they'll be able to do it. On a, at a fundamental level, you could design a system of logic gates with inputs and outputs that will, um, as a basic definition of a computer, be able to, to function. Um, I don't think that even they would have... Um, any no, any notion that this is going to revolutionise the way we make computers or do high-end computing uh, in the near term. But I think as an exercise, it's definitely very interesting and useful and uh, anything that gets people thinking more about how organisms from very different parts of the evolutionary tree process information and make use of that um, is going to be beneficial. Mm-hmm. Do you think that by studying biological computers we might get to different sorts of algorithms or different ways of solving problems that we haven't yet thought of. Yeah, absolutely. And that has proven to be the case in the past. Um, A very famous example is the ant colony optimization algorithms. So basically if if you want to design a system where, um, say, a fleet of trucks has to move a busy, through a busy traffic network and offload um, all sorts of different goods at different locations in the, the most optimal time. That is an example of what we call this um, NP-hard problems or non-deterministic polynomial time hard problems. The gist of it is that we could try to program something that solves this um, these really difficult uh, problems but there really isn't enough time left in the universe to run that program. It's just going to take so long to work it out because every time you add a new stop or a new good onto that truck or uh, something in the traffic network, that changes the difficulty of the problem in an exponential way. And so very rapidly it becomes much too hard for us to solve. So what people have done in the past for these kinds of problems is come up with what we call heuristics, which are, ways that will solve the problem 
in a quicker way that we know is not going to be the optimal, the, the one best way, but it's going to be useful and we can actually use that solution in our lifetimes. And people have looked to social insects in particular to find these heuristics because we know it's a very similar problem to what ant colonies have to have to solve in real life, right? They have multiple food sources or other tasks they have to do in the colony. They have to divide up a limited resource of uh, the, the foraging or the, the ant workforce amongst all those tasks and come to some kind of uh, efficient solution. And so ants are very good at doing this. And some mathematicians who, who realised that um, came up with some very good algorithms that um, were actually world-leading algorithms, especially during the 90s, for these kinds of problems. Um, and there's still variants of those algorithms being used today um, for various tasks around the world. So that's a real success story of, of how we can use these systems to make our own um, engineered systems better. Yeah, I think the slime mall got really famous uh, for connecting different cities, not connecting different points in the optimum way. <laughs> yeah, it was a really fabulous study um, by Toshiyuki Nakagaki's group. Who's really this guy's the grandfather of slime mold behavioral research. He's just an absolutely amazing man. But this uh, this project basically made an agar map of the Japanese railway network, put little um, oat flakes around each of the positions of the the major train stations in this railway network. And just ask the slime mold to connect them all up and what kind of network did it come up with? And in many cases, the slime mold was able to come up with networks that were as good or better than the human design network. But the key thing about this is how do we um, have a look at how the slime mold builds these networks? And they, the best part of this paper was they designed an algorithm for building networks based on the slime mold's behavior that works really well. Because when we design our human systems like um, transport networks or information networks, we tend to define them in a very, to design them in a very efficient way um, by making them the shortest networks possible because this will limit how long it takes to build a network and how many resources are required to build it. But that's not very um, robust to the kinds of things that happen in nature. So say there's an earthquake or some kind of disaster separates a part of that really efficient railway network, then a huge number of railway stops will be inaccessible. What slime all are able to do is to build a really efficient network in this way, but also put in a few key extra links in that network so that if a, one of these links is cut, the whole network itself doesn't fall apart. We call that robustness. And so the slime mold was able to make a really efficient and robust network. And what Toshi was able to do was to make an algorithm based on the slime mold's behavior that can design these efficient, robust networks. And that could help us in the future um, design better networks in this sort of crazy world we live in. And would you say that that's a benefit of having a decentralized system so that it's easier to adapt to eventualities? I think so. So because that slime mold network was built in a decentralized way, each local part of the slime mold was reacting to its own information, but also information from the surroundings and other parts. Um, that's what enabled it to build it. It's when you introduce a centralized controller or a foreman or someone, an engineer who's designing the network could be considered this centralized component. Uh, 
if they have this sort of global information, they can say, okay, this is the, the one shortest path network that we want to, to build, and we'll build just that without the extra links. Obviously, there's other factors like economics and time and um, geography and all these things that the slime mold didn't have to solve, but uh, we still can learn a lot from the slime mold's methods. Super cool. Um, well, now we can maybe jump to uh, another section of the questions that I had prepared. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so let's dive a bit more into the bandit problem, mm -hmm. uh, this paper that uh, you were writing as well. Mm -hmm. Could you explain what is the bandit problem to begin with? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the bandit problem um, is a very classic example of what we call an exploration exploitation trade-off problem. So basically, a lot of these problems we solve in our daily lives. If you choosing a parking spot at the, the shopping center uh, you may come across one as soon as you enter the parking lot but it's much further away from the entrance to the shops so you can decide to park there or you can decide oh, i want to see if i can find a, a parking spot that's closer to the lifts uh, so you're making this decision between exploring the environment for a better option or exploiting uh, the options that you know you have right now and this can apply to a huge range of things from how best to spread out limited research funding amongst a range of different agencies um, or stock markets or any kind of problem that we, lots of problems that we solve in our daily lives. Um, it's also a problem that's solved by a huge number of organisms that have to forage for food or to decide between different areas to spend the day. Um, and something that they, they've evolved over millions of years to solve, the slime mold included. And so the bandit problem it comes from um, the saying of the, the one-armed bandit, which is a slot machine, right? And you pull on the arm of this slot machine and you're given uh, some kind of reward output, right? So you, you may get um, a small amount of money back um, and then you pull again and you get another small amount of money back. If you pull on that arm, eventually you'll after acquiring a lot of information you'll be able to say how good the return is from that machine. Now imagine if that machine has two arms that you pull, and each of those arms gives you a, a, a sort of a random reward from a different reward distribution. So one arm is better than the other one, but you don't know which one. The only way you can find out which one is to sample them both. But what you really want to do is only pull the one that gives you the, the most reward. So that's where the exploration exploitation trade-off comes in. You have to explore both options and eventually just exploit the better one. How good are you at deciding which one is the better one? Because if you choose wrongly at the start, you'll be stuck on this um, poorly rewarding um, um, to return. So it's a classic experiment that's been used for a huge number of organisms, humans included, to test how good they are at solving this, this kind of trade-off. And what made you want to do this with using slime mold? I think this was during a phase where slime mold behavior research was really taking off, especially in the decision-making field. Um, we were basically looking at, okay, what, what are these classic uh, difficult decisions that people have been giving to humans and other animals with brains? Um, let's test the slime mold with it and see if it can do it as well. And so then the challenge really becomes, how do you do that? How do you design an experiment? You can't ask the slime mold to pull on different arms of the slot machine. So then you have to come up with something that's biologically relevant to the slime mold that it's going to want to participate in 
but you can gain some understanding of the same the same system that way. So we we did that. Was it difficult to come up with this experiment? Uh, not really. I think I think we we already had a bit of an understanding from a lot of um, previous work that had gone on, especially from um, these sort of world leading Japanese labs on slime mold behavior. Um, so I should explain essentially how it works. So if you want to test a slime mold with a, a multi-armed banded problem, um, basically you give the slime mold two different um, areas to explore. We call these arms. And they are composed of uh, blocks of agar, which is just basically a, a moist substrate for the slime mold. It doesn't provide it with any nutrients. It's just a nice sort of wet area that it likes to be in. Um, each of these agar blocks was interspersed with another block of um, agar, which had ground up oats inside it. And the slime mold loves to eat oats. So this is a rewarding part of the environment. So in one of these arms, you can have a block of agar, another block of agar, which doesn't contain any reward, and then suddenly a block of oat agar, which is nice and rewarding for the slime mold. So the more of these oat agar blocks you insert into an arm, the more rewarding that arm is going to be for the slime mold. But it can't know how many of these oat blocks are in there until it explores that whole arm. So basically, if we give these two arms um, options to the slime mold, as it expands through both arms and starts to explore more and more blocks, it builds up a picture of how good that environment each of these arms is. And eventually, it will stop exploiting one and exploit um, just one of those arms. And what we found was in virtually everything we tested, it was always the better arm. So we tried a huge range of scenarios from very simple things like there's just one rewarding block on one arm or an eight rewarding blocks on another arm, um, all the way up to those arms being either evenly distributed or randomly distributed in the environment, which is much harder to, to determine which one's better. And eventually the, the ultimate one was not just having an oat block and no oats, but differing the quality of each of those oat blocks. So some of them are better than others. And they're also dispersed randomly. And it's also hard to tell the difference of the two arms. And no matter what we threw at the slime mold, it was always able to find the better of those two arms in a really sort of rapid way, uh, which surprised us. So it's really this solving the two arm better problem is a piece of cake for the slime mold. So the, the way that you describe this last phase of the experiment, I don't think I would be able to pick the best option. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard. And when, when humans are tested with the two-arm banner problem, they tend to do pretty badly. Um, it we tend to have some kind of um, sort of implicit intuition that the rewards are always going to be somewhat random. Um, which is, which is actually termed a restless bandit scenario. So even when some, it might be quite easy for a rational agent to, to predict which one is the better of the two arms, humans tend to think it's going to be more random, that it can't be that easy, surely. Something's going on, they're trying to trick me or the world's against me. We're sort of hardwired to believe that it can't be that easy and we do pretty badly. Um, whereas the slime mold just takes the information that's given and reacts on that. So we wanted to go further into this and not just say, okay, what, not what just what can a slime mold do and what can't it do, but how does it do this? And one of the ways we tested that was we came up with 10 different ways that a slime mold might conceivably solve the problem. And they each differed in how complex they were. So something like, oh, I'm going to move um, on 
explore arm A for one step, and then arm B, and then arm A, and then arm B. Sort of this alternating exploration scenario, very simple. All the way up to the actual provably optimal algorithm for the two-arm metabomb, which is really quite complex, um, something that humans are very, very poor at doing. And was only figured out um, a few decades ago. It was one of these big problems in mathematics. Um, so we had all these different scenarios, and we said, okay, we know how the slime mold solves this problem because we have that data from the experiments. How does that match up with how each of these algorithms performs? And what we found was the slime mold doesn't do the really complicated, most super optimal way. Um, and that's not really a surprise because we can't do that kind of computation. Um, and it doesn't do very, anything too simple. It's actually right in the middle. It was the, um, the middle, medium difficulty equation, which was if I've explored uh, most of one arm and I found that 80% of that arm was rewarding, then I'm going to choose my next move to explore that arm with an 80% probability. So it's just a simple equation of matching your likelihood of exploring each environment based on the history of how good that environment was. And that turns out to be a really efficient way uh, to solve this problem. But then would adding more arms to the samples make it harder for the slime to solve the problem? In theory, it really should because the way that the these decentralized systems work is they're massively parallel. So you can give it a huge number of options and it can spread itself out in multiple directions to explore all those options at the same time. And if it's able to react to each of those options in the, the best way um, that option presents itself, then it should be able to solve this, the problem using the same equation in the same way, regardless of how many arms you have. Of course, there will be some kind of physical limit to how much it can spread itself out, and that might begin to limit the decision-making capability because it's limited in how much information you can get at one point in time. But in, in essence, the performance should be pretty good across a lot, large number of options. Okay, that's something that I would definitely not find so easy. <laughs> the more things I have to choose from, the more difficult it gets. Exactly, yeah. And that's where memory becomes uh, kind of important. It's because the slime mold is physically occupying all of these parts it's explored kind of has instant recall of how good those bits are at any one point in time, which is probably key to the process. Um, so from all of the studies that you've done relating to slime mold um, up until now, not necessarily just a banded problem, but other things as well, what is the most fascinating thing that you got to learn or that you know about it? Ooh, where to start? Uh, I think the bits that the aspect that first got me excited was the slime mold solving a labyrinth maze, which is you now a classic example. Um, if you spread a slime mold amongst a, along a classic example of a maze and place oat flakes at the beginning and end of the maze, then the slime mold contracts from all the dead end and longer roots of the maze and just has a single tube going through that maze to connect the oats food sources in the, the most optimal way. I think that's graphically still the best way to show this sort of, wow, a slime mold can do it. I mean, this maze was designed to test the intelligence of five-year-olds um, and this single-celled brainless creature can do it. It's pretty cool. Um, I think there's a lot more we could learn about specifically learning and memory in slime mold. One of the really good and still 
Um, still not really worked out papers from these Japanese labs, Toshi Nakagaki, was showing the slime mold can anticipate periodic events. So they grew a slime mold along a, a channel. So the slime mold is moving at a constant rate through this little channel, like a racetrack. But they could very subtly control the microclimate, uh, the slime mold experience at different points in time. So uh, once it reached a certain point, they would blast the slime mold with cold, dry air, which it doesn't like. And that would cause the slime mold to slow down. And so they would blast it and then not blast it and blast it and then not blast it in a very periodic way. And then eventually they'd get to the time point where they'd be blasting it again and they wouldn't. But the slime mold will spontaneously slow down in anticipation of this blast coming, which is, first of all, that's just amazing. How does it remember this periodicity, um, which is fantastic. But then after a while, the slime mold realized that this blast wasn't coming and it would grow at a steady rate. But then it just took one more blast, even hours and hours later, of cold, dry air, and the slime mold would anticipate the next one again. So it, somehow it's remembered this periodicity, and then it, in a couple more hours, it's going to get blasted, I better slow down. We have no idea what the mechanism could be for that. Would you say it's related still to this pulsating? It, it could be, but it's difficult to imagine how these physical pulses could be the way that it's enacting this, this sort of recall. Most likely it's some kind of chemical oscillation that gets set up inside the cell that it's using as a timing mechanism that can then influence its behaviour further down the track. Um, it's unlikely to be some kind of genetic thing, the genes being turned on and off at this time scale. So there's a few different candidate mechanisms, but it's really hard to imagine how the slime mold's doing this. And it's it's interesting that it's able to remember and anticipate to try to think about how is that useful for a slime mold in its natural environment. Um, all these questions still have to be answered. Do you know if there's anyone studying this right now? Some people have tried to model it and come up with different ways, but no, no one, as far as I know, um, is specifically studying that sort of mechanism of anticipation in the slime mold. Yeah. It's wide open. We should, we should do it. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> That's really cool. I find it especially interesting that it, like, you can recall, but then it goes back to normal and then you present the stimulus mm -hmm. again and then it recalls that. That's Yeah. How does it do that? Yeah. Mind-blowing. That's crazy. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> and uh, yeah. this slime research, I feel like it popped up uh, as soon as uh, this paper came out and, and about the Tokyo networks. What's the direction for it now? Where is it headed? What else can people study and learn from the slime? I think there's still a lot of examples of amazing things that slime molds can do that on some level we think they should be able to, and those are still useful. But what the field really needs to keep advancing is not just what the slime mold can do, but start to get at how it does it. What are the mechanisms it's using at the cellular level um, that allow it to exhibit these intelligent-like behaviors? Uh, that's where the really difficult stuff is, and that's why it's been left till now. But I think that's where it's going to become really important. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. Just uh, one more thing. 
Uh, when we do the radio episode, we usually have a bit of talking and a bit of music. And usually we try to make the music somehow related to the topic. And I know that there are a couple of people that play music using slime mold. Um, one, do you know how that works or have you heard of it? And two, do you have suggestions? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so... I forget, there's a, I don't know if you've seen the documentary called The Creeping Garden. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they interview a guy there who plays sort of a piano duet with the slime mold based on electrical impulses, I think, happening in the slime mold. Um, that's probably the best one that I know of. Um, I don't know who was doing that. Yeah, I think it was a Brazilian uh, guy, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there's a huge number of artistic collaborations with slime mold the people that have been doing it's really cool sounds great well thank you You're thank welcome. you so much for the interview all right thank you luna nice to meet you nice to meet you too bye bye i'll send you the episode as soon as it's ready that'd be great thank you look forward to it yeah bye, bye.